near the uh, near the end of Jesus' ministry, he's with the disciples. He's walking uh, out of uh, the northern part of Judea down toward Jerusalem. He comes out of this city that we're familiar with in the Old Testament called Jericho. And on the outside of Jericho, there's there's crowds gathered. There's people around, and there's people that are are really wanting to pay attention to Jesus. It's near the end of his ministry, so he's popular. Uh, the word's getting around, and so there's, of course, crowds on the outside of Jericho wanting to talk with him, and, and Mark tells us this in his gospel. The disciples, Jesus, uh, they reached Jericho, and as Jesus and his disciples left town, a large crowd followed him. As he got to the outskirts of the city, there was more people there waiting, and there's one man who was there along with others, and the man that Mark focuses on is his name is Bartimaeus, and he's a blind man, and he's a beggar, and he's sitting, and he's wanting some attention, and so he begins to cry out, and he says uh, this simple phrase, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. In fact, this prayer is so pointed and so thoughtful that Many people have made this uh, sort of a, a mantra of reflection and thoughtfulness in their own walk with God even today, this, this blind man, Bartimaeus. And so we learn to pray something as simple as, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And people around are thinking, Bartimaeus, just you know, hush up, be quiet. Jesus doesn't have time for you. All these people here, and you're just a blind beggar. And so we know that human nature is to, to put people in order of importance or or status, or class, or socioeconomic, or race. And so poor blind Bartimaeus is being shouted down. And Jesus catches it all. And so he says to the disciples and the people near, he says, bring them to me. Bring them to me. So they bring Bartimaeus over. The entourage kind of stops, and everybody's paying attention. And Jesus looks at Bartimaeus, and this is what he says. What do you want me to do for you? Say, say it with me. If you're at home, you can say it out loud too. Sitting in your living room, just say it with me. Are you ready? What do you want me to do for you? Jesus asks over 300 questions in the Gospels. I mean, to be sure, Jesus gives all kinds of incredible answers, like I am the bread of life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. He gives answers that with with clarity and pinpoint precision, help us understand who God is. If you want to know who God is, look at the words of Jesus. If you want to understand the Father, then pay attention to what Jesus says and how he loves and how he treats others. But even more than giving answers, Jesus asks questions. And his questions are really good questions. And this question that he asks it shows up a few times. What do you want me to do for you? It's not just Bartimaeus that Jesus asks this to. In fact, just a, a few verses before in the same gospel, Mark's story of Jesus, they're on their way to Jerusalem, and Jesus is telling the disciples, hey, here's what's going to happen. We're going to come to town. They're going to be upset. There's going to be a riot. They're going to kill me on third day. I'm going to rise again. In the middle of all this, James and John kind of, I think, on the journey, pull Jesus aside a bit and say, hey, we have a favor. We have something that we want to ask you to do for us. And Jesus looks at James and John just a few verses before he finds Bartimaeus and says, what do you want? What do you want? The question that he asks, what do you want? is a question that he asks you today. 
What do you want? In fact, if you were going to do anything this week that would sort of move your spiritual walk forward, if you were going to engage in any thoughtful reflection about what it means to know who Jesus is and how God is interacting with your life and maybe who he wants you to become, you should wrestle with this question. What do you want? What do you want? And sit with it. This question that is asked causes us to think in ways that we're not used to pondering. And your answer on any given day might be something as superficial as, well, I want something to eat. In fact, I want pizza, to be specific. I want, I want a nice, greasy, you know, no good for me pizza. Or maybe you're in a place of philosophical thought and you think, you know what I want? I want equality. I want justice. I want world peace. I want everybody to just calm down and just be quiet for a minute. Um, I don't know what it is that you want, but it may be somewhere in between those extremes that you want. I want five minutes. I want a nap. I want something that can at least help me get through this day. The question is, what do you want? And it's an essential question. And it's not just Jesus that asks it. So I'm asking you, what do you want? Now, I don't push past it. Don't, don't just set it aside. What is it that you want today, this week, this month, this decade? Look at it close and back up. What is it that you want? As you wrestle with that question, other questions seem to pop up. Like, why do you want that? What will it do for you? How will it help you find your way forward? Is it what you really want? Or is there something else that's sort of attached to it that will give you what you want? It's a question that, that a 10-year-old, a 15-year-old, an 18-year-old, a 50-year-old could wrestle with and thoughtfully move towards God while they ask this question. It's not just me asking it. It's not just Jesus asking it of Bartimaeus or James and John. It's the question that is in place from the very beginning. So we're in this series about the exiles coming back. It's a, a, a nugget of history from the Old Testament that we're trying to put in context. Because my guess is a lot of you don't spend a lot of time just poking around the Old Testament. Maybe you do, and I do that a lot, but you know, it's my thing. It's my, it's my job. I, I, it's what I do. In the very beginning, we started in Genesis last week to kind of paint some context. Let's go just a little bit further in Genesis, and then I'm going to give you a big picture. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden. We talked about creation last week and how God planned the garden and Things grew up in fruit, and not, not just fruit and delicious, wonderful, tasty fruit. We spent a, a day, two days in Palisade and saw some of the, the peaches that are going to be ripe and shipped over the Denver, you know, for your pleasure. This is what God created. He put them in the garden to work it and take care of it. Just a, a reminder that work isn't a result of the fall or because of sin. Now we have to work. Work, good work, good, thoughtful work that we put our hands to was around long before sin even entered the picture. And so this is the man and the woman in the garden, and the Lord God commanded the man, you are, and don't miss it, 
you are free, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden. This is true. This is absolutely true. Now, you, you know maybe a bit about the story and that we're going to learn about two very specific trees in the book of Genesis. Lots of trees are growing. Many are fruit-bearing. But there's two trees. One is the tree of life that they eat from every day, this beautiful tree that God gave them, gives them life. But the other is this tree. But you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will what? You will certainly die, God says. But don't forget, don't forget, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, including that one. You can eat from that one if you want. But I recommend you don't. I suggest you not do that. And you don't have to be, you know, five or six years old. You don't have to be, uh, have much life experience at all to know that the moment God says this, what's going to happen about five minutes later, right? Because if you have kids, then you saw this. I mean, you can play with any toy in the room and you put something breakable and, and precious on the coffee table, but you can't play with this. And nothing else is appealing except for that one thing. What is it? You're the same way. I mean, it's not just kids, right? There's this thing about something that's forbidden or that we shouldn't. And there's this idea that, that well, I, I don't even know why I want it. But now because you said that, that's what I want. That's the very thing I want. What is it about a boundary, a guideline, a rule that inflames this in us that makes us want to move toward it? Adam and Eve aren't unique. They're just like us, made in the image of God. And that desire that's in you, this thing about what we want, this is in them long before the fall occurs. I mean, of course, it brings about the fall. The fall meaning sin enters the picture. But it's there already. They're made in God's image before sin has tainted anything and we know what occurs. They move toward this tree. The serpent's there. The serpent says, did God really say that? And surely you won't die. You'll be like him. You'll be like God. And so most of what we know about humanity and the ills and the difficulties and the pain and the disease and thorns and thistles stems from this moment in history that we understand in Genesis because God is saying, when he puts these, these two trees there, tree of life, tree of knowledge of good and evil, God is asking Adam and Eve, what do you want? What do you want? Do you want a relationship with me? Do you want the benefits of that relationship? Or do you want the thing that I've said you shouldn't have? If Genesis 2 and 3 teaches us anything, it teaches us that often the thing that we want causes us trouble, doesn't it? That trouble could be a few pounds that we're trying to figure out how do, we, how do we get rid of. The trouble could be a broken relationship that we wish wasn't broken, that we could repair, that we've betrayed somebody, we've lied, or we've been dishonest, or we've disappointed somebody in some way. Or it could be that the trouble from what we want has caused us to reap the whirlwind, as it says in Job, and we have all manner of difficulty and pain all those things that are a part of our life that we wish weren't anymore. Sometimes what we want puts us in a place where we don't want to be at all. Sometimes it's superficial and sometimes it's much deeper. And so to 
give us an overarching view of, of where this is headed and what the exile is about and what it means to come home again for the people of Israel, then I want to give you an overview of the Old Testament real quick. And as I do this, um, we'll do this in about five minutes, okay? So if you don't know much about the Old Testament, it's the biggest part of your Bible. It's 39 books, and this is the story of the Old Testament in one little picture. We know a little bit about creation, right? But right after creation, some big things happen before we get to Abraham. Things like the, the Tower of Babel, the flood, some of the stories that you might remember from Sunday school if you did that when you were growing up. Very important things. But as God begins to work through his creation, he calls a man named Abraham to say, I'm going to make you into a great nation. We talked about last week, made in God's image, a blessing to bless other people. And that's true for us too. And so Abraham I'm going to make you into a great nation, and so he does. And the Jewish people, the Hebrew people, are born into a people all from this one family. And most of Genesis is about Abraham and his sons and his son and his son. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Joseph. And maybe you know the story of Joseph with this coat of many colors and his jealous brothers. And they sell him into slavery. And where does Joseph end up? Anybody remember? Egypt, that's right. Joseph ends up in Egypt, which seems horrible and awful until the Jewish people experience an incredible famine and all of the Jewish people end up in Egypt provided for because Joseph ended up there first. And it seems good, good news, right? But later it becomes bad news because they're enslaved and the Pharaoh doesn't remember Joseph. And so if you remember the story of the Exodus, God raises up Moses and he pulls them all out of slavery because they belong in a very specific place, right? They belong in the promised land. Moses doesn't take them, but Joshua does. And now the people of God are in the promised land and they're living according to the law, the law of Exodus and Leviticus and Deuteronomy of the Torah. Hundreds of commands that the Jewish people must live by. But how to decide who is right and who is wrong and who has been slighted and who has been betrayed by somebody else who broke the law? Well, God establishes people that the scriptures call judges. And some, you know some of the judges. People like Samson, he was a judge. Deborah, maybe you remember her, she was a judge. And Samuel, we'll talk about Samuel in just a minute. But eventually, of course, the judges, the period of the judges gives way to these men that will rule the kingdom, the kings of Israel, Saul and David and Solomon. And what follows are dozens of other kings of Israel, a united kingdom at first, but then a divided kingdom. And of course, eventually neighboring kingdoms, jealous for the land and the people of Israel, conquer and disperse and then bring into captivity the Jewish people. And the golden age of the kings of Israel comes to an end with what is called an exile. And our series is focused in on one little small piece of history for the Jewish people when they come home. What does it mean to come home? Who leads them home? How do they get home? What's it like to come home? Just like us, after the coronavirus is the first wave, is there a second wave? Who knows? But we're coming home a bit, and so some of you are here, and some of you are there. And, and so this, of course, has some lessons for us. But to help us understand how we get here, we're going to take a look at the very end of this period of time for the judges, the very last judge of Israel. His name was Samuel. Samuel's a good man. He was a very anointed man. In fact, from before his birth, he was set aside as special and holy. And he judged the people of Israel. 
So what that means is that if someone had a dispute about a law that was broken or something that was going on that causing friction and difficulty between the people of Israel, they would come before who was the appointed, the given judge of Israel at the time. There was only one. And Samuel was the last judge, and he would listen to the dispute, and he would listen to God. He was not just political, he was very spiritual, and he would render a decision, and his decision stuck. He had spiritual and legal authority for the people of Israel. But when we pick up this story, Samuel's getting old. As Samuel grew old, he appointed his sons to be judges over Israel. This would turn out to be the worst decision that Samuel would ever make. Joel and Abijah, his oldest sons, they held court in Beersheba, it was a Jewish town, and these were the places where they began to practice their father's trade of being a judge. This was not God's idea. This was Samuel's idea. But they were not like their father. We don't really know why the tree uh, didn't have the apples close to it, why the apple fell so far away from the, the goodness, the righteousness, the solid nature, good godly character of Samuel. But Joel and Abijah, they were not like their dad. They were greedy for money, they accepted bribes, and they perverted justice. This is a pivotal moment in Israel's history. And the people of Israel see what's coming. We like Samuel. We love the way he arbitrates justice among us. His boys are different. We don't like their boys. And so the people of Israel say this. Look, they say, the people of Israel say to Samuel, you are now old and your sons are not like you. Give us a king to judge us. What do they say next? Probably the most adolescent thing in all of Scripture. We want something that everybody else has. We don't want another judge. They could have said that. Can you just change judges? Ask God who needs to be a judge, who's a fair judge. That's not what they say. We want a king like all the other nations have. Because a king gives a nation power. A king gives a nation prestige. A king that leads well and is strong can make the people of a nation feel like they have a place in this world. Be careful when you ask for a king. You want what he can give you, but you want what he can give you for all of the wrong reasons. And God and Samuel have a conversation about all of this. Samuel goes to God and says, they don't want my boys to be a judge. They want a king. And God, of course, knows that this day was coming. And God says to Samuel, look, they're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me. They don't want me, God says to Samuel. They don't want me to be their king any longer. Ever since I brought them from Egypt, they have continually abandoned me and followed other gods. And now they're giving you the same treatment. It's not about you, Samuel. These people, they have hard hearts and they want what they want. Do as they ask but solemnly warn them about the way a king will reign over them. And so he does. Samuel sits him down, his counsel in Israel, and he says, are you sure you want a king? He's going to take your sons and he's going to send them off to war. Are you sure you want a king? He's going to take your daughters and put them to work in his own vineyards. Are you sure you want a king? He's going to take the first fruits from your crops 
for his own celebrations, for his own family. This king will not be for you. This king will be for himself. This king will not rule because he's beneficial. He will rule because he has power and authority and position. This is what happens. This is why the adage, power corrupts, of course, is historically true, cyclically, over and over and over again. Samuel says, you don't want a king. He's going to abuse you and take what you have, and he's not for you. This is what it means to be king. Can somebody be a king and escape? Escape the corruption of political power? Well, not yet. We've not seen it happen yet. And then he finally gives them this one bit of the warning, and he says this. Look, when that day comes, when you get a king, when all of this occurs, you will beg for relief from this king you are demanding, but then the Lord will not help you. This is what Samuel says. So the men of Israel, they listen, they pay attention. He's going to take our sons. Okay, he's going to take our, our daughter and our crops, and all of this will happen, and there we will be enslaved. This is what occurs. We will not have the power. We will not have the freedom that we want. And then they say, well, I don't know. We still want a king. That's what they say. In other words, they want what they want. We want to be like the other nations around us. Our king will judge us and what? Lead us into battle. What do they want? Why would they go into battle? This is an agrarian society, agricultural so I have my land, and my land is a 1,000 hectares or whatever it is. I have what I have. Why would I go into battle? Why would I go into battle? I want more. More what? More than what I have. I want more than what has been given to me. Is what you have enough? Well, yeah, but that's not the point of more. The point of more is what? More. Don't you understand? Have you paid attention to what more is? I want more, and I want to be led into battle. We want to be like the other nations. We've heard about this other nation that has this king that led them in the battle, and he was victorious, and they had their victory celebrations and their victory marches, and everything, everyone knows we want to be a part of that kingdom. We're the greatest in the world. That's the kingdom we want to be a part of. They will lead us into battle. Be careful what you want. When Jesus asked the question, what do you want? And that goes all the way back to Genesis. Bartimaeus wants to see. The man by the pool wants to be healed. James and John want authority and to sit on Jesus' right and left hand in the kingdom. They want prominence and leadership and influence and significance. What is it that you want this question is important, not so that you feel judged or condemned or less than or I'm sure I want something awful. That's not the point of the question. The point of the question is to wrestle with this question, understanding that sometimes what we want causes us trouble. And when we want it, underneath it is another question of why. Why is it that you want that? If you wrestle with the first question, then you're a step toward understanding spiritual connection with who God is and why he's created you. Then 
the question of why matters most. So why is it, James, John, why do you want to be important? Well, we, we want to tell the other guys what to do. That's why. Why do you want to do that? We're tired of being bossed around. Why do you feel that way? And as Jesus begins to peel these layers back when we wrestle with this question, what do you want? We come to the understanding, the conclusion, that often what we want, not only will it get us in trouble, but it drives us away from God. So what do you want today? What do you want? Racial equality? The destruction of all injustice? Why? Why do you want it? Look, if you want good things for the wrong reasons, you will still be enslaved. Still. If you want good things to come, but you haven't wrestled with your own motives, then you will find yourself in the wilderness without God, without a relationship with him. Adam and Eve, what do you want? We want the knowledge of good and evil instead of life. Come on, why do you want that? The question that we wrestle with leads us to understand that sometimes what we want will get us into trouble. So we want success, but at what cost? Security from what? We want someone to be in our life to love us unconditionally or to make much of us. When those become the end or the goal, then we find ourselves in trouble. So the question that you ought to wrestle with is this one. What do you want? Can you reflect on it and ponder it today? Are you brave enough to do that? In the quietness of a moment, away from the noise, away from the, uh, the pushing and the pulling of the culture to ask this question. That's what God wants you to do. When we wrestle with this question, we come to terms with the fact that God loves us more than we could ever ask or dream or imagine. That if you're in Christ, there is no condemnation. And so why would Jesus ask this question of Bartimaeus or James and John or the man by the pool or the other three or four times that he asks it? Because he wants them to wrestle with the issues of their heart. And when they do, they find themselves longing for one relationship, a relationship with God that brings the peace, a peace that passes understanding, a peace that will never leave. And so when the psalmist says this, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart, then again, I'm wrestling with this question. Well, what are the desires of my heart? And God will give them to me? And all of a sudden, this verse feels a little bit like a bait and switch, right? Oh, I've got to delight myself in God first, and then I get what I want. In other words, want what God wants, and God will give you what you want. Is that what it sounds like to you? And yet God is terribly concerned about what you want. And he wants to give you good gifts. And he wants to bless you and lead you towards a relationship with him where the gifts are all on the periphery. And the center of who God is is central to who I am. So again, ask the question, what do you want? And when we ask this question, it's really just the beginning. I can think of a few things that I want. Why? Why do I want them? 
Well, when I think about why, then I have to talk about my motives or my desires that lie underneath the reasons for them. And then I end up asking myself this question. If I understand what I want and some of the motives that are underneath, then I ask the question, who am I and what do I value? What do I find important? And that's where God begins to do some of his deeper work. And so this season in our nation's history right now, as I watch the news unfold, one of the first times I ever heard the term white privilege, I was so offended. I was so deeply offended. Privileged me. I grew up in lower middle class America. This was my perception of where I grew up. Turns out it was upper middle class. But, you know, who's splitting hairs, right? I mean, I had what I needed, some of what I wanted. White privilege. And then I began reading a bit more and thought, well, you know, maybe I'm a little privileged, but not that much. Compared to whom? Ah, that's a good question to ask. And then I began reading and watching and paying attention to people who grew up in circumstances very different than mine. And all of a sudden, I find myself whispering to some of my friends or closer confidants a statement that feels like an indictment. I might be a little bit racist. Can you be a little bit racist? As it turns out, you can. In fact, we shy away from that word because it feels very binary, right? Either you are or you're not. But what if we decided to take motive out of the equation? And now my perspective is different. In other words, when someone's called a racist, it feels like they're just a bad person. But it could be, maybe I just lack the understanding of what it's like to grow up in somebody else's circumstances. What if I began to learn? So what do you want? Are you willing to take a closer look inside? Because regardless of what's happening in our culture, when we ask this question, we have to face that the problem is not out here, but it's in here. And it's something I have to deal with. It means I have to take an honest look at where my blind spots are or where my perspective is or as I watch the news where my anger is coming from or when somebody disagrees with me why my reaction says more about me than them so the author of Proverbs says it this way a motive in the human heart is like what deep water and a person who has understanding draws it out, that it takes time and thought and reflection. So when Jesus says to Bartimaeus, or when God says to Adam and Eve in the garden, or all throughout Scripture, when Samuel says to the people of Israel, what do you want? What comes out is an understanding of my priorities, my values, who I am as a person, so what would happen this week if you wrestle with this question? What would it look like? It might mean that you're able to have some conversations with the people you love because, like it or not, the people around us, well, they comprise better mirrors than we would ever want them to be. And so they can help us understand what we want. 
And so when someone you live with says, well, this is what I want, you can say, well, you know, based on what you've said to me this week or our discussions around the dinner table or your reaction to the news, what it seems like you want is, and now we're having a discussion, one that can lead us to a place of understanding, a different place. If it's true that what we want is often bad for us, it's also true that God redeems the heart and that he purifies us and helps us to want what is good. But only when we come to him open-handed, ready and willing to answer the question, what is it that you want? Let me guide you through a prayer time as we wrap up today. Lord, right now we come to you heads bowed here in this room and at home online as well. And we wrestle with this question, what do we want? And we desperately want to be the person that is described in Proverbs, that that we want to be a person of understanding. And we believe that the purposes of our hearts are very deep waters, that, that it might take some time to sit with and be still around these ideas. We see the history of Israel. Uh, We see this moment in the garden, and we see a reflection of ourselves all throughout Scripture, that often what we want isn't good for us, but we believe that you want to give us good gifts. And so, Lord, we're wondering what it means to be like Jesus in this world, how to be thoughtful and reflect on this question so that our values come to the surface. Lord, we don't bring up some of the less than presentable desires of our heart so that you will condemn us. We do it so that you'll clean, purify, and redeem us. And so like a good father, as we show you what you already know, parts of us that need your touch and your love and your mercy. We come so with repentant hearts, humble, contrite hearts. And so there's some of us in the room that desperately want security, but we know at the end of the day we'll only find that in you. But we long to find it in places like bank accounts and retirement accounts and even a a sure job that uh, won't go away. We want our security in so many different ways. Lord, help us to find our security in you. Lord, there are many of us in this room that desperately want the unconditional love in a human form, a, a way that we can know and be made much of and be understood. And Lord, help us to find that only in you. Lord, whatever it is that we want, help us to just... Be honest with ourselves first, knowing that you are right there in that moment with us. And help us to seek you. And help us to learn from history. Lord, we ask that this week as we live this out, as we seek answers to these questions, that you will guide us and walk with us. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray all of this together. And we all said together, Amen.